grab your Bible this morning and open your Bible up to the book of Exodus. We're going to be reading Exodus chapter 3 this morning. So we are in the middle of a series on the attributes of God, and our goal in this series is to look at God. That's our goal each Sunday, is to stop consider this great God who he is. And so we started off by considering God's existence. Last Sunday, we considered God's incomprehensibility. And this Sunday, we're going to learn something new of God from Exodus chapter 3. So hear God's word, starting in verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Prezites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you, shall, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain." And Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I've observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Let's pray. 
Father, we give thanks for your word, and we ask now your blessing on us as we go to your word and listen. Give us life, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we can go to Exodus chapter 3 this morning and consider the story of Moses. What was certainly an ordinary day for Moses became unusual for him. While Moses was keeping the sheep of his father-in-law, he happened upon a bush that was burning yet was not consumed by the fire. And so Moses turned aside to see this great sight. And there as he turned aside, he met with God, or we could better say God met with Moses. And so in this meeting in Exodus chapter 3, Moses becomes privy to God's great plan of salvation. So here is Israel, the people of the promise. They're in captivity. They're bound. And the Lord promises to Moses that he is going to come and take action for these people, bringing them out from the land of bondage that they might worship and serve the Lord in freedom. And Moses, who is this shepherd in the wilderness, has a key role to perform. He's going to serve as God's messenger. He's going to speak and do God's bidding in front of Israel and in front of Egypt. And so as we consider Exodus chapter 3, it is an awe-inspiring scene. It's one of those scenes in Scripture where where God comes and he, he draws near and he draws close to his people. And when God does this, we as readers of Scripture get a good view of him. And if we have our hearts aligned if we have eyes to see and ears to hear, we should bend low and worship him because of this scene, because we get to see God. And that is exactly what Moses did in Exodus chapter three. In the presence of God, Moses took off his sandals and then he hid his face from the Lord in an act of reverent worship. But we need to stick with the story of Exodus chapter three a bit longer. And when we stick with the story, we we see that this is not the only thing that Moses did There was awe, there was wonder, there was worship. But all of a sudden, all of these good things are replaced by something not so good. Fear, and this isn't the good sort of fear, like a reverent fear or a holy fear. This is the kind of fear that makes someone stumble and and bumble and fall over themselves. And that's what Moses does in Exodus chapter three. God's plan of salvation is before Moses. The Lord tells Moses what his task and responsibilities are in this great rescue. And here is Moses. He looks like a worm trying to wriggle free and get off the hook and get away from God in this. And though we might not like what Moses does here, it should make sense to us for a couple of reasons. First of all, Moses knew well Egypt. <laughs> He was raised in the royal court. He knew the power, the ability of the Egyptians. And to turn it around, the Egyptians knew Moses as well. And so Moses tries to avoid this whole matter. There must be someone who would be better for this work than than him. So Moses protests. Chapter 3, verse 11, he says to the Lord, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out? And then if you move on to the next chapter, in chapter 4, verse 10, Moses Moses sharpens his protest and disagrees with the Lord again. He says, oh my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. I can't do this work. Send somebody else, not me. And there's another reason why Moses tries to get away, and that is because Moses was known by Israel and and Moses knew Israel very well. If you remember, one of the reasons why Moses had to flee Egypt and the people of God was because of Israel's stubbornness. 
when Moses went to intervene in the affairs of Israel, he saw two of his brothers fighting each other. He was brutally mocked by his own people. They did not respect him. They didn't care for him. They said this in chapter 2, verse 14, deriding Moses, who made you a prince and a judge over us? And so Moses is doing the math in his head. He is looking back at his treatment with Israel, and he's looking forward to this task that the Lord has for him, and he's, and he's doing the mental math. He's making a forecast. If they treated me like that, then the future doesn't look so good for me. These people are going to be difficult to lead, maybe impossible to lead. So Moses objects. Chapter 3, verse 13, he says, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they shall ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? We, we ask, well, as readers, why is Moses objecting here? What does that even mean? But as we read on, chapter 4, verse 1, Moses sharpens his protest again. And he goes down to a single point, and it's this. He says to the Lord, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. So here is Moses in the presence of God, and fear has taken over his soul, and all he can see as a result is a road full of roadblocks. Here his faith is faltering. The promises of God, the word of God, fear is taking hold of his soul, and he wants to get free from God. But you have to love the Lord because the Lord is patient and he is kind with Moses. What does the Lord do? Well, Moses is worried and terrified, so the Lord comes to Moses and he gives him assurances. Chapter three, verse 12, the Lord says, I will be with you. Moses looks to the future and he projects failure and rejection. But the Lord does what? He places into Moses' hands signs and wonders to be done. Moses equivocates and tries to draw away from the Lord. But even here, the Lord is patient. He accommodates to Moses and gives Moses heir and his brother to be a mouthpiece for him. But as we read chapter 3, there is one help that outweighs all the other helps that Moses gets from the Lord. There's one help that is so solid and secure that if Moses will just set his feet on that help, all will be well for Moses and even the people of God. So what is that help? Look at verses 13 and 14. The Lord speaks to Moses and he says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Why will God's people be rescued? Why will the plan succeed? Why won't Moses be put to shame? Why does Moses need to obey and just put away all of his fear and just do what the Lord has told him to do? What is the answer here? Is the answer Israel? Should we point to them? Or is the answer Moses? Should we point to him? Or is the answer something else? Maybe some technology or scheme or strategy? Should we point somewhere else? Well, we get our help in verses 13 and 14. We are to point to the Lord. The answer is this, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. We can just put this through because we know how the story goes. The Exodus succeeded of who the Lord was and yet is and will always be. The Lord is the self-sufficient one. He relies on no man or no thing. He is utterly and unexplainably independent and solitary. He doesn't depend on anyone or lean on anyone. He doesn't derive his life or his power or his wisdom from anything. He is the first cause and the last end. He is before all and after all. Better yet, he just is. He is, I am who I am. And because of that, 
No man, no power, no thing, no entity can thwart his will, plan, or work. And what Moses comes to learn of God in Exodus chapter 3 at the bush is this. God is ase. So that's our sentence this morning as we learn of God. God is ase. And so there's two words there. The first word is ah. So the letter A, the second word is se, S-E, and that's Latin. And it means something very simple and easy to understand. God is from himself. God is from himself. And so some, for some help, we can substitute some English words in here. Words like independence or, or self-sufficiency or solitary or even perfection. And what happens in the, in the doctrine of God's aseity is all of these words are wrapped up when we say God is ase. So it's our task this morning to try to understand this doctrine. And here we, we meet a challenge immediately. The doctrine of God's aseity, or when we say God is ase, means that God is completely different than us. He's completely unlike us. We are creatures, and as creatures, we're limited and finite even more. We derive our life, we derive everything from someone or something else. But God is ase, and that means not only is he infinite and without measure, but he derives his life from himself. So as creatures, we cannot wrap our arms around the totality of God's aseity. So how can we understand this? Well, I think the best way to move forward is by the way of contrast. So what we're going to do is we're going to contrast ourselves with God, and we're going to make three different contrasts to try to understand this doctrine a bit. And so we're going to contrast our beginning with God's, our existence with God's, and our end with God's. And so let's look at this first contrast to begin with. So our beginning and God's. And so we can say this about ourselves. Our lives have a definite starting point. So as we think about this room and all the people in here, 10 years ago, some of us didn't exist. And we can go further, you know, 30 years ago, 50 years ago, 80 years ago, some of us did not exist. There's a time when we didn't exist. We weren't here. And as we think about it, there's a reason each one of us came into being. We didn't come into being through our own will or volition. We didn't say, I want to be born now. That's not how it works. We didn't have anything to do with it. No one consulted us. We just showed up because we were fathered and mothered. But here we need to turn and look at the Lord. As we look at the Lord, we learn that God has no beginning point. He is, as Revelation 1 verse 8 says, the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come. And to extend that even further, no one, no thing brought God into being. God has no father or mother. He has no originator or inventor. And to reach even further beyond that, God has never developed or progressed or grown. There are no earlier models of God. There was God 1.0 and now there's God 2.0. There was God as a child or an adolescent. Now there is God as an adult. No. God is from himself, and what he is from himself, he will always be, because that's who he's always been. And because of this, all things derive their life from God. So we can think about anything, rocks or trees or lepers or even angry atheists. God is the one who brought them into existence. They are here because God did it. Psalm 24, verses 1 through 2 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and the world and those who dwell in. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. In fact, all things continue to exist 
because God wills that they continue to exist. So God did not just make the world and then just set it aside and step away from it, letting it do its own thing. No, we learn from Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, the work of the Son of God. Hebrews says, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Moment by moment, all things derive their life from God. And so that's our beginning and God's. Now we can move to our second point of contrast, our existence and God's. So consider your existence and all that is entailed in you just being you. You need sleep. Ideally, you need seven or eight hours of sleep every day. And think about that. You need to become blind and deaf and dumb and defenseless for you to keep on living. You need to do that one-third of your day or one-third of your life. You need to be like that. We need food and water to live. You need to chew on and digest plants and animals, munching them up in your mouth or you will die. Then there is our emotions. If you don't feel loved or appreciated, what happens? You get grumpy. When you're separated from your friends and your family, you grow despondent. When you don't get enough light in the winter, your energy dips low. But here God differs from us because God has no need He has no need of sleep. Psalm 121 verse three says, he will not let your feet be moved. He who keeps you never slumbers or sleeps. God doesn't have need for anything. He doesn't have need for, for food or drink or anything like that. Acts chapter 17, 24 and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives life to to mankind and breath and everything. And we can go on. God is not emotionally needy either. He did not create the world because he was bored. He did not create the world because he was lonely. He has no need in himself. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 1.11 that he is the, the blessed God or the happy God. He is infinitely happy with himself. And Jonathan Edwards would later reflect on that verse saying this, God is infinitely happy in the enjoyment of himself, in perfectly beholding and infinitely loving and rejoicing in his own essence and perfections. And we can go on. In fact, we must go on. Think about your life. You gain knowledge through learning. You gain wisdom by experience, doing something right, doing something wrong. You gain knowledge by by looking and studying But God, it is not so for him. He has never learned. He has never learned one thing. He has never gained. He has never gained one thing. He has never added or supplemented to himself. He has never searched for anything or queried for anything. His knowledge, his wisdom, his intelligence is self-derived. And so we might say it is self-knowledge and self-wisdom and self-intelligence. And what he is, he is what he has always been and will always be. So that's God's existence and our existence And we can make the last point of contrast, our end and God's end. And so we all have an end. We're all going to die. There's an end point to to our lives. We're going to stop breathing. But what I mean here is something more than that, more than death. There is a, a purpose for our lives. And if we're listening to the scriptures, the purpose for our lives is this, that we would glorify and enjoy God forever. And then when we think about the gospel, this is what the gospel has done for us. We were living selfishly for our own ends, for ourselves, but God has come in his grace and he has freed us from those ends so that we might live for him and him alone. But here's the point of contrast. 
It is righteous, it is commendable for us to live for another end. We must live for God, and that is our good. But God, we need to own this, exists for himself, or he is for himself. His end does not lie in man or in creation or any other subordinate end. His end is himself, and all things exist for his sake. If you love what the Apostle Paul says in Romans eleven thirty six, he takes this truth and he nails it to the floor and he says, exalting in God, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. That might sound a bit strange to you. Maybe it sounds a bit weird to you. Maybe it's new to you, but it's true. And that's what it means for God to be say. That's the doctrine of God's Aseity. And as God's people, we need to learn to love this and treasure this. George Swinnick, a Puritan author, works this through for us because we need to think more about this. And he writes, drawing these contrasts so that we might to learn to love God. And so he writes, and I want to just read his whole paragraph here. Swinnick says, As God is his own first cause, so he is his own last end. As he is holy from himself, so he is holy for himself. All other beings are for another. All things were created by him and for him. Since all things are from God, it only stands to reason that they must also be for God. Good people and angels are for God and exist for his glory. Evil people and angels are also for God. All beings are of him and through him and to him. But God is altogether for himself as his highest end. He is his own end as well as his own beginning. He does what he does for himself. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you have created all things and for you please that they are and were created." Similarly, he is what he is for himself. He is wise, infinite, almighty, everlasting, unchangeable, holy, righteous, and faithful being for himself. And so when it helps us some more, he gives us all of that, and then he, he brings it together with three closing sentences. He says, it is the excellence and purity of the saints to be what they are and to do what they do for God. You want to be excellent? You want to be pure? Live for God, Swinnick is saying. Then he contrasts and he says this, but it is the excellency and purity of God to be what he is and to do what he does for himself. And then he closes like this. He who is his own happiness must be his own end. And so that's our end and God's end. And with these three contrasts, we're starting to trace out the contours of God's ascetes. We look at our beginning, our existence, our end. We contrast ourselves with God, and we're, we're beginning just to see what it means for God to be say. And this is just the beginning of, of trying to understand out what it means for God to be, I am who I am. And it's here I want to settle in on application. We kind of have the contour of God's aseity in front of us. Now we need to think about, well, what does this mean for me? How do I live differently in light of this truth? What we already see from Exodus chapter 3 is that the doctrine of God's aseity is for Christian living. Here is Moses. His his faith is faltering and failing, and God gives him the doctrine of aseity so that he might not fall, that instead he might stand upon him. And that's what the doctrine of aseity is for us. We need it for our faith and faithfulness. If you want to walk with God, you want to serve God, you need this doctrine. 
So what I want to do is I want to give you three very short sentences of application to use this doctrine in your life. And the first sentence is this. God doesn't need you. God doesn't need you. That sentence sounds cold and harsh. Maybe not what you expect to hear on a, a Sunday morning. Maybe it's like a, a solid punch in your stomach when you're not expecting it. And you, you crumple over, but it's the truth. God doesn't need you. In fact, we must come to love this sentence that God doesn't need us because it is glorious. Now just imagine for a moment that we switched this around and said that God did need you. God needs you. Picture a world in which that sentence would be true. What would that world look like? What would that world be? Well, I think it would be a hell, and it would be a nightmare. Just think it through. In that world, God's salvation would only go forward if you nudged it along, if, if you pushed it towards its proper end. God promises that his glory will cover the world as the water covers the seas, and all things will be made new, but it depended upon you to make that happen. Or in that world, God would only be happy if you came along and you paid sufficient attention to him. God's happiness, you must do something for him. You must worship him the right way or serve him the right way and then he will be happy and then he can continue existing. In that world, the will of God would only be accomplished if you agreed to it. God's plan, God's purposes completely dependent upon you. And here's the reality. If that world did exist, you would be crushed by the God-sized burden of the weight of it all. Because a God-sized burden would rest upon your shoulders. Even worse, what you would find if that world did exist, that God wouldn't be there at all because that isn't God. Now, the troubling thing about this whole reality is that we are duped by it all the time as Christians. We often believe that God does, in fact, need us. So here's a hypothetical situation that might make this come home for you. So in this situation, you're all bent out of shape about your, your ministry. You're in ministry. You're doing something for God's people or, or for people outside of the church. You're, you're serving, and, and you're bent out of shape. And in being bent out of shape, you start saying these things in your head. Maybe they start coming out of your mouth, but they go like this. If I wasn't doing this, all of this, if I wasn't carrying this load, if I wasn't getting all of this work done, if I wasn't expending my energy, if I wasn't making this sacrifice, if I wasn't giving away all of this money, if I wasn't taking on all of this responsibility, then nothing would happen here. What happens in that kind of situation? Have you ever said those things in your mind? Well, we believe that God needs us when we're saying things like that. And so when you begin to serve the Lord, there's always this temptation baked into service that service can be about us. And the reality is when we make service about ourselves, all of a sudden, all we can see is ourselves and the result is that everything then depends upon us and what we're doing and who we are and our skills. And then something very sad happens. We're left angry and tired and cynical, worn out and burnt up. Why? It's really hard to work and live and serve when you deny functionally the satiety of God and when God depends on you. We're not made to live like that. We're not made to serve like that. So what do we need to hear? Well, we need to hear the truth. God doesn't need you. We need to hear it when we give our money away. God doesn't need you. We need to hear it when we give our time and our energy away. God doesn't need you. We need to hear it when we're doing our preaching and our teaching or whatever you do. God doesn't need you. 
And this is what the scriptures do, that they preach this truth to us. Psalm 50 preaches it like this. The psalmist says, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. Why, we ask. The Lord says this, For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? And the psalmist is saying to Israel, God doesn't need you. He has no need. He has all in himself. And the truth is the same for us. And it's a truth that if we apply it, will lead us to happiness in God. This leads us to the second sentence. So God doesn't need you. Second sentence, you need God. That's such a simple sentence. You need God. It's a sentence that as Christians, I don't think any of us would disagree with. Nobody's going to raise their hand and, and protest against that sentence. But I think it's a sentence that we often take for granted and we really don't understand well. How do we need God? Do we need him like a cup of coffee Is he just a a quick pick-me-up in the morning to just get us going, to get the fog out of our heads? Do we need him like an afternoon snack? He's just something that keeps the engine going until we can get to dinner. Do we need him like a Hallmark card? We just need someone to come along and pick up our mood and then we can carry on with our, our lives. How do we need God? Well, the doctrine of God's estate, he won't let us settle for anything shallow like that. Our need for God goes deep and it permeates the whole of our existence. Just think about it for a moment. If Jesus were to stop speaking right now, you would stop existing right now. It's just simple as that. You wouldn't be anymore. In fact, if Jesus stopped speaking, the whole universe would stop existing and nobody would even know that you or the universe ever did exist because it's completely dependent upon Jesus. So we get everything from God from the atoms and molecules that make up our bodies to the strength and energy we exert to get all of our work done, to the thoughts pulsing through our minds throughout the day. Everything comes from God. So every second of the day, every moment of our lives, for everything, we need God. And this is not just true physically, but it's true spiritually. No part of our salvation or our experience of God's grace is self-derived or self-made or self-accomplished or one through our own personal energies or effort. Just think about this for a second. In Jesus, so if you're in Jesus, you have justification. That means you have a right standing with God. Your sins are forgiven. You've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ, and you are judgment-proof. You're going to pass through the judgment to come. Now, how did you get that? Well, that's a gift, of course. Jesus paid for that with his own life, with his own blood. That's why you're justified. You didn't do anything. Christ did everything. But you think here for a moment and you say, hey, I did do something. I did one thing. I believed. I trusted in Jesus. The gospel was was preached to me and I heard it and I said, yes, I want this Jesus and I want life in him. But even here, that isn't your accomplishment Faith wasn't some work that won you something. Faith in Jesus, too, is a gift from God. And if you continue to drill down, we will see that the ability to believe and the the desire to believe and the capacity to believe is something that God gives us as well. 
That's what the doctrine of the new birth and regeneration is all about. God comes and he changes our hearts so that we would love Christ and see Christ as good and that we would run to him in faith. So you see, whether we're thinking about our lives naturally or our lives spiritually, what the doctrine of God's aseity does is it opens up our eyes to just how needy we are of God in everything, in everything. And so we need God. You need God. And this brings us to our last sentence. Go to God. Go to God. And so this third sentence builds on the first two, and the first two sentences should be working on us. First sentence, God doesn't need you. Second sentence builds on top of that. You need God. And if we're holding on to those and getting those, we need to do something. What do we need to do? We need to go to God. Let me put it like this. We do not have life in ourselves, physical life or spiritual life, but God has life in himself, from himself. So therefore, as God's creatures, even more, we are God's people, we must go to God to get all that we need. And this is what the doctrine of aseity does. It calls to us, it calls to us, it says creature, it says, says sinner, saint, go to God and get what you need from him. Embrace your creatureliness, embrace your needs. And go to God. And we must remember this going to God is good. Because when we go to God, we're not going to some Scrooge who sits in the heavens. We're not going to some curmudgeon who doesn't want to give away life to us. We go to the God who loves to give life to his people. Just listen to what Psalm 36 says about God. Psalm 36 says, How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. What do we do as God's people? We take refuge in God. We hide underneath his wings. We go to his house and we feast on the abundance of his goodness. He feeds us and he feeds us and he feeds us. We go and drink from the river of his delights, and there is no end to them. And why do we do this? Well, listen to what the psalmist says. He grounds everything on the doctrine of God's aseity. He says, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. That's glorious because the doctrine of aseity grounds and secures all goodness for God's people without end. And so here's the truth. If you embrace these three sentences, God doesn't need you, you need God, and then you go to God, here's what you will find you will find the God who is ase, or as the psalmist says, who is a fountain of life. And so let's go to him now in prayer. Oh, Father, we are so thankful for your word. We, we need it. And we need doctrine pushed into our hearts so that we would live before you as we ought. You don't need us. We need you, and so we come to you now. Feed us, make us whole. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.